0: So, Jay, I've been reading Spider-Gwen. So good, right, Miles? Right, Uh, but I was wondering, are there mutants on Earth-65? There sure are. We've only seen a couple so far, but they're definitely around. Which ones?
1: Let's see. Well, at the very least, I know there's a school for mutants in upstate New York, and, um, of course Logan's around. What's he up to? Working for S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh, cool. Kind
0: of like in House of M?
1: Kind of like House of M. Well, except that in Earth sixty-five, he's got a different backstory, a different job, and a very different code name.
0: What's he do? Killer for hire, mostly. Well, that's not that far off the beaten path. And the code name? Mister Murderhands. What? I mean, that's awesome.
1: I'm Jay Editon. and I'm Miles Stokes, and we are here. To explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 232 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest
0: superhero soap opera. And welcome to Britain. I mean, space! Britain's space? I mean, I guess Britain has space above it. But yes, we have come back to Excalibur this time around, and to a very different status quo. Speaking
1: of Excalibur
0: and Status quo, you want to know some great Spider-Gwen trivia? I I do.
1: So Spider-Gwen is from Earth-65, and that means that the Captain Britain of her Earth is in fact Brother Britman.
0: Brother Britman! I remember him from that time that Captain Britain, like, fought all of the other captains Britain when he was on trial. Yeah, but not Brother Britman
1: because he's a pacifist.
0: Earth 65 just keeps getting better and better. Also, man, I'm so excited that apparently there is going to be a spin-off to into the Spider-Verse focusing on Spider-Gwen, potentially even two, one with her teaming up with Miles and one with her with some other like female Spider-Man related characters. I love everything about everything about that movie. It was so good.
1: In the latter case, I think specifically with uh Jessica Drew and Cindy Moon.
0: That's freaking awesome. Yeah. Ah, but we are not a Spider-Gwen podcast. Yet. Although perhaps someone should make one. Uh, We are an X-Men podcast, an Excalibur. Hey, they're kind of like X-Men.
1: They are. And at this point, in
0: fact, they have been absorbed into the
1: X-Office. The book is now edited by Suzanne Gaffney, and it's going to be way more of an X-Men book and and way more mutant-focused going forward.
0: So Jay, it occurs to me we haven't really talked much about the idea of offices within Marvel on the show. So do you want to tell the listeners kind of what the deal is with that?
1: Okay, so in general, um, there are there are Marvel offices, editorial offices that are clustered. By line. So there's an X office and, and there are a number of books that exist under that umbrella, some of which are official X-Men books, some of which are not. So, for example, Deadpool, which doesn't really fit neatly into another category, usually ends up grouped under the, the general umbrella of the X office. Um, occasionally other titles do too. There's you know, an, an Avengers office. Um, I assume there's a Spidey office and so forth. And, some, and and usually those those involve one or more managing editors and then the folks working under
0: them. And that's going to be very, very evident going forward, because not only is Excalibur going to cross over a whole lot more with the other X-Men stuff, um, soonest in Fatal Attractions, but we're also going to see much more of a focus on mutant characters, and boy, howdy, are we going to talk about that this episode. What we won't have yet is a stable
1: writing team for the time being. We're going to see a lot of switches between who's plotting and scripting, um, mostly between Scott Lobdell and Richard Ashford, but with a bunch of other folks Um, thrown in. And that's not really going to stabilize until Warren Ellis comes onto the book.
0: Which is not going to be for a while. Other stuff about this arc. So you may recall that the last time we covered an Excalibur arc, not issue because that was that wonderful D&D annual, but arc was the end of Alan Davis's run. Excalibur went to the Days of Future Past timeline and basically fixed everything. And there was a big two-page spread of Excalibur as a wonderful, happy family all embracing and talking about how great life was.
1: And it's all downhill from there. Which, to be fair, doesn't necessarily mean that it's that it's bad, because that's one hell of an apex for the line. But I gotta say, with every single one of the issues that we've, we've read for this and, and every single one that I've been reading ahead on— I'm judging everyone involved pretty hard for not being Alan Davis.
0: I do that in my day-to-day life. I mean, really, every friend, partner, acquaintance, cashier—not Alan Davis—that's a point against them.
1: I mean, I have no idea what he's like as a human being. Um, for all I know, he's—he's just—he—he he only speaks in in horrible, like you're splitting shrieks and and. I, I don't know, I'm just trying to come up with really awful things that aren't, like, aggressively evil. But um, but but I, I feel like it just doesn't get better than his work on Excalibur, at least for this comic.
0: Yeah, I would completely agree. I mean, Ellis' run is fun, but Davis was the high point. But as for this arc, the first arc after Davis leaves, and the one that leads Excalibur into its future as a straight-up X-Men spinoff— What's it called? Well, that's a really good question, because in Part 1 of this story, we see that it is Dead Space Part 1, and then there's the title of the issue. However, the next issue
1: is Part 2 of Exile.
0: And then the third issue doesn't have, like, an overarching story name at all. So what should you call it? I don't know. Yeah,
1: I'm probably gonna stick with Dead Space.
0: That's fair. I haven't actually played those games, so uh, I don't really have an existing context. Speaking of existing contexts, though, let's talk a little bit about what's happened in Excalibur that's going to be relevant to this arc.
1: Excalibur, Britain's premier superhero team, started off as a mix of Marvel UK characters and former X-Men.
0: We have Captain Britain and Megan from the former category, and Shadowcat, Phoenix, and Nightcrawler from the latter category. Over the course of the series, the team has nearly doubled in size. New to the team are fantasy barbarian Catman Kylan. Whiny, teenaged wizard, Farron. Kinda boring, size-changing secret agent, Micromax.
1: And Cerise, the wild-haired warrior of the Grand Jahar, Jeanstock of Subruki, Zarstock, and Kulika. What does that, that all mean? Readers hadn't found out yet. All we knew was that Cerise was powerful, charmingly ignorant of Earth customs, and a very powerful warrior.
0: Yeah, she didn't know what kissing was, she referred to it as lip massage, and did a whole lot of that with Nightcrawler as they gradually fell in love, and also one time with a D&D character. Jay, I am never going to get over that Excalibur D&D story.
1: I know, that's, that's so utterly charming and bizarre. I, I, it's, it's just going to stick around forever. We should, I feel like we should, we should talk to Logan about somehow tying, tying this into whatever we do for the next summer special.
0: I love this plan. Anyway, meanwhile, in our Earth, the real world, Alan Davis had, as we said, just ended his superlative run writing and drawing this book.
1: He had ended by tying up a lot of dangling plot threads and doing a great job of just sort of going back through pretty much all of Claremont's history on the run and pulling from some other places, too, to give us this amazing, amazing finale.
0: So let's see what happens next, because it's a superhero comic. Something always happens next. Specifically, Excalibur number 68, Facades. Part one of uh, Dead Space, I guess.
1: This is plotted by Scott Lobdell, scripted by Dan Slott, penciled and colored by Steve Buccalato, and inked by Harry Candelario. And the story opens with captions informing us that Between issues, Captain Britain got dragged off by a temporal wave on the way back from earth Eight Eleven. Whoops.
0: What the hell? This is like almost as bad as Cyclops dying off-screen in X-Men 3, which was easily in the top 15 terrible things in X-Men 3.
1: I would argue that this is actually worse, because there we at least had some surrounding context,
0: and here it's just like, Oh, and by the way, this happened. I was so mad at this issue when I bought it when I was a kid because I loved Captain Britain. I had the trade paperback of like the second half of his big run, the one after Alan Davis that was by Jamie Delano. He'd become one of my favorite characters or at least my favorite sort of second tier characters. And all of a sudden he was gone with barely any explanation. Also gone
1: from the team is Megan, who is sufficiently upset by Captain Britain's disappearance that she has taken leave in order to pursue a new full-time career of being sad in a waterfall.
0: It's actually pretty cool. She's sort of merged with the water of the waterfall and is just sort of staring off sadly into space, and it works pretty well. I'm not a huge fan of Steve Bucolato's art in this issue, but certain little bits work, and I think this is one of them. And I will say... There is a grand plan for Captain Britain disappearing and for Megan getting semi-catatonic. Like, it's not utterly without context, but still, reading this month to month, that sucked.
1: He's gonna come back with a mullet and a terrible code
0: name, But a pretty awesome costume that I used to draw in my notebooks in school all the time.
1: I love that, like, righteous mullets are what you get when you fall into the space-time continuum for a while.
0: That sounds about right. Did the 80s come out of the space-time continuum? I mean, I guess technically I was going to say, by definition, yes, but... Anyway, one of our other lineup changes is that Micromax has suddenly joined the team. You know, the size-changing guy who was working with secret agent-ish organization Fi6 a while back, who there wasn't really that much interesting about?
1: Yeah, um, he was kind of a jerk and boring, and now he's on Excalibur, and might be running it, or at least think that he is, although nobody else really seems to agree. Micromax does have one ally on the team, at least Kylan is staunchly in favor of Micromax's enthusiasm for fight training. And Micromax, for his part, is likewise unimpressed with Excalibur.
0: All the files at Fi6 labeled this team as the peculiar mutant team. You know, exploding bathrooms, dinosaur doppelgangers, crosstime capers. All I've seen during my observation period is a bunch of angst-ridden supertypes, all of whom are morbidly over-obsessed with death. Speaking of which, one
1: of those supertypes, Kitty Pride, is currently falling apart because Ileana Rasputin, her best friend, is dying um, in America. This takes place, by the way, a bit before Uncanny X-Men 303, which we covered in episode 230.
0: And this is something that's happened a lot to Kitty. I mean, not as much as it's happened to Colossus, but still the people she cares about sort of dying off one by one.
1: And that's going to continue to be a theme throughout a lot of her life. What she's got now that she won't have
0: later, though, is Farron. Kitty Pride, I command you to stop crying. A, don't you knock? And B, you
1: can't just command a person to stop crying.
0: I... ...did not mean for you to get upset. It's just back at the Order, Brother Francis and the other monks would follow any commands I gave, and I just... ...didn't want to see me cry. That's sweet. Kind of lame, but sweet. Not the way it
1: works in the real world, though. Takes a little more. Maybe a kind word? A hug?
0: Well then, hug me if you must. But... Thanks, kid. Uh, uh, Kitty, about those kind words... Don't sweat it, Farron. Look at him! He's learning to person! I am so proud. Seriously, there's so much potential in this incarnation of Farron, he's just starting to come into his own as a character. Eh, uh, won't be around for much longer. Uh, Sigh.
1: And Kurt, meanwhile, is gloomy because nobody else really seems to... Respect the gravitas of the situation Especially Rachel who is Completely coincidentally to that Dressed like a biker genie
0: Okay, so I said that I wasn't super into Buccolato's art, but as I also said, there are a couple little bits that I love, and biker genie Rachel is like the greatest goddamn thing. She's got a leather jacket and black tight pants and a bustier and spikes everywhere, and her mullet is extra mullety, and I don't know what Rachel's fashion goals are, aside from being awesome, but I'm so impressed.
1: No, I mean literally, she's just, she's a biker genie. She will grant you three wishes, but only if those wishes are like power-ups for your fancy motorcycle.
0: You know, I'm not really a motorcycle rider, but uh I could be.
1: The other person who's really bugging her right now is Cerise, who is all about the makeouts even while bereaved.
0: And so Nightcrawler blows up at her and she flies off, not really understanding what she did wrong and yet feeling guilty about doing it. You know what?
1: Feelings are terrible.
0: I would say complicated, but, you know, potato-potato.
1: Outside, Kylan and Micromax are happily spar- sparring, and it turns out that they aren't the only ones who are up for some outdoor fightin'. Because the Starjammers have just showed up, and if anyone likes a good brawl in a forest, it's the Starjammers. So it's been a while since we've seen the Starjammers.
0: Let's do a little roll call.
1: Alright, so the Starjammers in general are a crew of space pirates, at this point essentially space privateers because they're pretty much working for the Shi'ar government right now, led by Corsair. That's Cyclops' absentee dad.
0: We also have Mademoiselle Hepzibah, who's a skunk lady. Not a cat lady, but a skunk lady. Everybody forgets that.
1: Cha'od, who is a large Saurian and also presumably Jewish.
0: And Raza, who's a cyborg swashbuckler with a big topknot, and I love him.
1: Not included in this issue are robot medical officer helicopter Sikorsky and Waldo, who is small and possibly a pet.
0: The Starjammers are here to arrest a war criminal, and everybody assumes that that, of course, is Rachel Summers, the Phoenix, because that's been a plot point, like, a whole bunch of times. Sudden twist. It's not the Phoenix this time. They're here for Cerise. And so there's a big fight, and we usually don't go into detail about big fights because it's mostly just people using their powers and punching each other, but I do want to say that Hepzibah's posture in the first full panel that she's featured in is like that famous, or I should say infamous, Frank Cho Spider-Woman drawing times a hundred. I feel so bad for her spinal column and organs. Like, this is the part of Steve Buccolato's art I don't
1: like. So like her butt has a secondary butt? Uh, it's, it's just butts all the way down. I mean, butts are fundamental, man.
0: um, But-um-ching. Or I should say, um, but-um-ching. I've been wanting to make a t-shirt with that on it for so long. That'd be a pretty good t-shirt. I feel like that's something one of the characters would wear in questionable content at some point. I I feel like that is is a statement of purpose. Of life. Sure Sure is. Anyway, so point is, there's a big fight. There is a big fight. And... And you know, I know we don't I know we just
1: said we don't talk about fight details a lot, but there's another one I wanna bring up, um, at least for some equal opportunity iffiness, which is that Nightcrawler in this scene, in this whole scene, is is not wearing a shirt and his pants are only colored a shade darker than his fur. And so a lot of the time at first glance
0: it just looks like he's naked. Do you remember that one Assad Ribic X-Men cover where Wolverine is sitting at a table with a bottle of beer held vaguely over his crotch and in the foreground you can see a naked Nightcrawler from behind and Assad Ribic was so pleased that nobody noticed Nightcrawler was naked until the cover was already published?
1: Well, that it's 100% a porn cover, too, because there's the, the beer bottle positioning and the fact that Wolverine is very specifically glaring at Nightcrawler's dick.
0: <laughs> James Howlett, glaring at Kurt Wagner's dick, volume 12.
1: It's a it, the the story about that cover is is really terrific. I think it's one that 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 Greg Recca um, posted a while ago, and I'll try to link to that in the visual companion to this episode. It's it's also just it's it's ribbing, so it's a beautiful, elegant, absolutely unquestionably porn cover.
0: Well, anyway, Kurt Wagner aside, uh, yeah, Cerise goes with the Starjammers willingly. Apparently, she accepts guilt for whatever the hell she's done, and they all teleport away. But
1: Rachel and Kurt have been making plans telepathically, meanwhile, and Rachel is able to keep the Stargate open so Excalibur can follow, which they do, except for Kitty, who stays behind to keep an eye on Megan.
0: Now, wait a minute. So Kitty stays behind to look after Megan, and Farron, who has volunteered to look after Megan but nobody trusts him, but Nightcrawler invites Micromax to come along? What gives? Well...
1: What I'm gonna assume is that Kitty volunteered to stay behind because actually volunteered to stay behind because Ilyana is dying and she wants to be accessible if something happens or comes up, and that Kurt is aware of this, and that he invited MicroMax along because, you know, a warm body.
0: Okay, I suppose that merits a minor no-prize. I'll accept it.
1: Anyway, even though Cerise has totally said that she did the thing she's being accused of, Kurt is convinced. That this is a false accusation and that they will somehow exonerate
0: her. And so the good guys go into the portal after her. Now, this revelation here that Cerise is Shi'ar, that's kind of a new one. So far we've just seen her as sort of an ambiguously quirky and strange alien lady.
1: I don't think this does actually establish her as Shi'ar. I think this just establishes her as working for the Shi'ar Empire. Because something we see in almost every appearance of the Shi'ar, and specifically even in in Cerise's flashbacks, is that the Shi'ar Empire includes and spans a really large number of alien races, um, many of whom serve in the Shi'ar military. Cerise herself may or may not be Shi'ar or partly Shi'ar. There's a case to be made largely based on her hair that actually could go either way.
0: So I was thinking about this, actually, and we were actually talking, listeners, about this a little before the episode, like maybe too much. So the Shi'ar, they have that big sort of Centauri from Babylon 5 style hair, right? They have the plumage, yeah. Right, but they're always super careful to not rough their plumage. Like, when they have helmets, they have big triangle helmets that, you know, go over their hair without messing it up, kind of like Wolverine's uh, motorcycle helmet in X-Men Evolution. Cerise, however, wears a skull cap over the center of her pokey-outy hair, and that makes me think that she's not Genetically, she's not the species called the Shiar. I agree. I think she's just part of their empire.
1: Yeah. So for me, that makes a ton of sense. Um, it also makes a ton of sense that her hair is styled the way it is, and in a deliberate homage to her evocation of Shiar hairstyles, because that's you know something you see a lot with when one group's got a lot of cultural power, and a, specifically, um, you've got an empire and its colonies.
0: Yeah, I. I mean, I realize we may be looking into this way more than is warranted, but I think we've come up with some good points.
1: Miles, that is literally our mission statement.
0: (laughs) Spending far too long talking about Cerise's hair and the cultural significance thereof. The Jay and Miles explain the X-Men story.
1: Jay and Miles explain the X-Men. We care about the weird stuff.
0: And that leads us to Excalibur 69. Nice. Blight and Fog. This has a story by Scott Lobdell, a script by Evan Skalnick. Hey, he did that D&D story. Yes! Evan Skulnick, if you're out there, if you're listening, we want to play D&D with you. Pencils and Colors by Steve Buccolato once more, and Inks by Don Hudson. And I want to talk about the cover to this issue, because we see a very sad Cerise holding the corpse of this small dolphin child. And something about that, about the way the dolphin child was drawn, almost as like a simplified Gumby-esque character, just made the kid look so much more innocent than they otherwise might have and made Cerise's sorrow so much more palpable. And I don't know, like, I don't know that this is a cover that would get me to buy a comic, but goddamn if I didn't just look at it for a long, long time on multiple occasions when I was a kid.
1: I think it's also important that the child she's cradling is only dolphin-like and
0: not an actual dolphin because dolphins are dicks. Dolphins are dicks. So... Anyway, we learn what the deal is with Cerise's crimes, or at least a part of that at the beginning of this issue. She was stationed on the ship,
1: the Grand Jahar, and her understanding was that the Grand Jahar was on a conversion mission. It was there to recruit folks in the outer regions to the Shi'ar Empire through basically cultural diplomacy and enlightenment and, you know, maybe some mid-grade threats not so much the case, at least according to one of her superior officers.
0: <laughs> I love it! Yes, precious, we are converting these savages to the ways of the Shi'ar. And I guarantee you that whoever survives will be only too happy to join. And then he disintegrates the dead baby, which seems kind of excessive given that it's already dead. He's just so evil. He even looks almost exactly like Sigma, the bad guy from Mega Man X, which just made him an even more delightfully villainous villain to me. So I realize he's like a horrible genocidal monster, but I kind of like the cut of his jib, aside from all the, you know, genocide. So
1: Cerise vows that she is going to stop her warship from murdering any more innocents. And we don't yet find out how she does, because that flashback is interrupted by- Cerise's exile, along with another prisoner, to the prison rock, Crag,
0: And we see a lot of the prison guards of this whole part of the Shi'ar Empire, and they actually look a hell of a lot like the Rob Liefeld character Bad Rock from Youngblood, and that actually made me like them even less when I was a kid, so I guess they were effective villains because they looked like a comic by a creator whose work I was angry at when I was young. Anyway, meanwhile, back on the Starjammer, that being the ship of the Starjammers, Corsair is demanding to know just what the hell is going on with this mission he was sent on by, apparently, Lalandra Naramani, the Empress of the Shi'ar Empire.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Starjammers have consistently supported Lalandra, they've worked in concert with her, but they're fundamentally an independent group, and enough of what Cerise has said and enough of what Corsair has seen has, has given him doubts about this that he wants some answers.
0: Lalandra, however, is being a total dick in response.
1: Do not overstep yourself, Corsair. I have enough to worry about right now without your meddling. We have an alliance. Don't make me forget that.
0: It's like Lalandra has a switch on the back of her neck and one setting is sympathetic underdog and the other is pompous ass.
1: Um, there is a third setting that she'll only get to years and years and years and years later which is basically blue screen but that is irrelevant for these purposes and yeah that's that's about it she is empress but she is empress um, of of an empire that has been ruled largely by her extremely terrible brother and she's an empress who's been fighting for her throne for you know a lot of her life. And so I think who who goes in feeling like she's got a lot to prove and also who in a lot of ways, I think, was the better of two evils. We're talking about deposing a really awful tyrant to put a slightly more humane tyrant on the throne here. We're not this. This isn't you know, she's not installing democracy.
0: Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Well, after the holo call, Corsair's pretty pissed off and seems to demonstrate that by blowing a hole in the wall of his own ship. But nope, he was just using his Han Solo-like ship telepathy, I guess, to zap a hole in front of the hold where Nightcrawler and Micromax were hiding. They're a little concerned. They figure that they're going to have to get in another uh, Star Jammer fight. But Corsair says, nah, dog, we're on the same side. Um, Since you're wearing your underwear and that's it, uh, here's a cool spacey-looking version of your costume. This is also the issue where we find out that Excalibur gets
1: most of its tactical inspirations from Star Wars.
0: Yeah, that comes up a lot. Now, Phoenix and Kylan, they've taken a different route into this mission. They're in disguise wearing, you know, um, sad peasant robes, I guess, near where Cerise is being sent down to the prison planet, Crag. And when they get caught, sure enough, Rachel straight up tries the Jedi minds trick on one of the Bad Rock looking guards.
1: You do not need to see our papers. Everything is fine. We are free to proceed.
0: Um, it uh turns out that 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 doesn't work yeah
1: um yeah and the the guard realizes that she's trying to trick them and you know rips off the robe to reveal her dark phoenix costume at which point everyone freaks out because you know dark phoenix gear
0: but it doesn't take too long for one of the random alien types who apparently has some kind of something something powers to figure out nah that's not actually phoenix she just kind of looks like it and everybody wanders off disappointed
1: I mean, she's a little phoenix-y.
0: Yeah, ish
1: So everyone meets up on, on Crag or at least on the upper levels of Crag. The, um, the prison is, is further down. Um, and Kurt has a, a detailed
0: and clearly well-thought-out plan. I am going through that transporter to find Cerise. Then I'm going to bring her back home. Kicking and screaming if necessary. I have mixed feelings about this. I mean, if I was being a dumb space martyr, I would definitely want my awesome fuzzy boyfriend to intervene so I didn't go to space jail. But, like, at the same time, you know, agency. Like, presumably Cerise knows what she's doing, Kurt. Come on.
1: I feel like this is a conversation that she should have initiated far, far earlier in their relationship.
0: Okay, yeah, to be fair to Cerise, though, she didn't know about this retcon until Scott Lobdell started writing either.
1: The next step of this is is for them to get to the inner levels of Crag to get down to the surface where the prisoners are. To do this, they repeatedly threaten an alien guard um, or or bureaucrat of some sort, sort into porting them down, but first showing them the evidence against Cerise. And I love this guy because they're holding a gun to his head. They're trying to be really badass. And he keeps on being like, you're asking me to teleport you down to a prison world from which there's no escape. And I really don't give any fucks about any of this, so you really don't have to threaten me here. Like,
0: it's a weird request, but I don't care. <laughs> I love it. So, yeah, we see some recordings of what happened with Cerise.
1: What, what they've got is a hologram of Cerise in the middle of a massive firestorm, officially taking full responsibility for the death of everyone on the Grand Jahar ship, but insisting that it was the right thing to do. The Shi'ar had assumed that Cerise had died when she'd blown up the ship, but then they found her on
0: Earth. And sent the Starjammers after her. Now, Kurt is, like, pretty sure that things are not really what they seem. And yes, clearly they are not what they seem. Every time we've seen any of this from Cerise, whether it's been the flashback she's been narrating or this thing right here, she's made it clear, hey, there's additional context, but apparently I don't have time to talk about it right now because, you know, explosions or getting interrupted by Badrock or whatever.
1: Down on Crag, there's yet another interruption, and Cerise is forced to kill a lizard guy with an impressive vocabulary who immediately tries to kill Cryon, uh, who's, who's the alien who she's sort of tentatively befriended based on the fact that they were next to each other in line.
0: So, uh, yeah, first day in prison, you pick a fight with the biggest guy. I've seen TV, that's what you do.
1: Um, literally, no one in the scene is doing that. The person who attacks her is picking a fight with, like, a sad little old lady. And Cerise is only going after someone in defense.
0: Well, right, but to other people, it looks like she got in a fight with the biggest guy and then killed him. So they're going to be very impressed, and they're going to leave her alone on the playground or however it is that prison works.
1: You are absolutely incorrect about every aspect of that.
0: I stand by it.
1: There's, there's a little bit more that's happening on Earth, but I think we're just going to scoop that together with the next section. and Which brings us to Excalibur number 70... Story by Scott Lobdell, script by Richard Ashford, pencils by Ken Lashley, inks by Don Hudson, Rick Parker, Agap, uh, Gemgian, and Danny Taverna, and colors by Steve Bugalato.
0: Ken Lashley. Um, I knew I recognized that name and I looked it up. He's the one that does the art for a long time uh, in Excalibur starting with number 70, but he was also the guy who wasn't Greg Land in Uncanny X-Men Volume 3, the one that was all x force and I appreciated him not being Greg Land.
1: As did I. I mean, that is that is a strong selling point for any artist for me, really. But back on Earth, Kitty and Farron are having no success getting through to Megan. Um, Kitty's been trying to, to, you know, tell Megan to connect with Megan over over her own grief. Megan's just unresponsive. Um, and Farron concludes that, well, if, if Megan just wants Captain Britain, he can help. He'll assume Captain Britain's shape, which Kitty, who by this point is just on her way out the door to go see the dying Ileana, okays for some goddamn reason.
0: And so, yeah, Farron illusorily transforms into Captain Britain, talks to Megan, but Megan's emotional elemental metamorph powers are such that Farron just inadvertently turns back into himself and also gets really sad and also stares off into the distance in the waterfall. No, no, he's staring at Megan.
1: They're specifically having a sadness stare down that they're just locked into at this point, and Kitty decides that,
0: you know... She's got other things to deal with and heads off to New York. But I gotta give it to Farron. He tried. He tried dumb, but he tried, and that's worth a lot to me. On Crag, Cerise is attacked by
1: someone in a very familiar yellow and brown costume with a very familiar name. This is Fang, but it's not the same Fang whose clothes will This is This is a different Fang. This is specifically Fang 4, who among other things is a lady.
0: Yeah, now, if you missed the original version of Fang and wish you were, like, a thousand times weirder, then you should read that Weekly Wolverines series from a few years ago. I mean, it's really good, but the version of Fang in it is freaking bizarre, and I love him. I think?
1: The original Fang, of course, was introduced during the Brood Saga, which is honestly maybe one of my favorite classic arcs. Definitely one of my favorite classic arcs. Maybe my favorite. And I'll link back to that in the visual companion to this episode. Meanwhile, though— on Craig, Cerise manages to protect herself and her buddy Cryon from, from Fang, but again, she has to kill the attacker, this time just as Excalibur and the Starjammers turn up, which is super awkward. Excalibur is very, very judgy about the situation, but Corsair makes Cerise's case pretty compellingly. There are times when you just gotta kill or be killed, and if superheroes don't recognize that, that's largely because they're in a position where they don't have to.
0: Yeah. Own your spandex-clad privilege, guys. So, I have a question about this, though. We see, just as Cerise kills Fang, Excalibur all just standing there and posing with the Starjammers. So, is it that Excalibur and the Starjammers were very, very sneaky, and that's why Cerise didn't notice them? I assume that
1: they ported down and arrived just in time for her to snap Fang's neck.
0: Okay, well, maybe that's for the best, because if they were very sneaky and then they just stood there while their friend was like in a life or death struggle, that would be kind of a dick move. Or I guess a dick lack of move. There's about to be a great big brawl, but suddenly Cryon's face turns into Lilandra's. It turns out that Old Lady Cryon is actually part of a telepathic race who has powers that allow Lalandra to sort of, like, hitchhike along, which she did to find out the truth about Cerise. But again, I have questions. If Cryon can do that, why didn't Lalandra have Cryon do that, you know, before Cerise was teleported to a horrifying prison planet where she had to murder a couple people?
1: That's an excellent question, and I think what it goes back to is the fact that Lalandra is not actually that good an Imperatrix.
0: Or that maybe Scott Lobdell should have thought that one through a little more.
1: That too. So Cryon takes everyone back through the same flashback we saw before, this time more explicitly from Cerise's point of view, along with attendant narration. I had failed the helpless Nsashians. I would not fail the next planet listed for conversion. As the ship began to pull away from the blighted planet, I entered the escape pod and donned the deep space suit. I had timed my departure to the last second. No one would notice my leaving because they had other things to be concerned with. I had set the controls for the heart of the sun.
0: Oh, I guess Cerise is an old Pink Floyd fan.
1: Given the choices, I think we should probably be glad she didn't go with careful with that
0: axe, Eugene. Huh. Or a saucer full of secrets. This is confusing enough as is. But anyway. Anyway. The moment the ship activated its warp
1: drive, the directional computers would plot a course into fiery oblivion. I wondered, would they find salvation? I knew there was none for me. And she explains that what she did next was head to the nearest Chiar outpost to try to turn herself in, but... Her ship was thrown, of course, by a solar flare, and she ended up getting thrown through a stargate and landing on Earth, where she met up with and became BFFs with Excalibur, to whom she completely neglected to mention
0: any of this. And since Excalibur, even before, was sort of related to the X-Books, as we know, the X-Men are very bad at just making a freaking phone call— Now, Lalandra says, all right, Cerise, now I understand what you did was pretty much justified, but you should have worked within the system instead of murdering the system.
1: Yeah, um, she killed literally everyone on the ship, and I feel like you can make a lot of arguments about the relative complicity and culpability of, like, the cooks and the janitors and the large number of people in her relative position. Um, So, so yeah, a little bit iffy. Um, And... Lalandra's solution is is that she sentences Cerise to spend the rest of her life working for Lalandra to root out shitty commanders among the Shi'ar. Despite Kurt's objections, Cerise goes along after one last kiss. Her lips fade in resignation to her fate, and Nightcrawler is left alone with his memories, and the faintest impression of a kiss.
0: I always really liked that line. See, that's the thing— I'm not a big fan of what this story does, which is essentially to write out Cerise and to begin the process of writing out a lot of other characters, but there are parts of it that really do work for me. It's a tragedy, yes, but I do think it's an effective tragedy, as long as you don't think too hard about a couple of the details, and let's face it, we're X-Men fans. We've trained ourselves to not think too hard about details sometimes. So,
1: we've got a lot of new members here, and we've got a lot who are going to be leaving pretty soon. Um, Are we ever going to see Cerise again?
0: Well, she'll be back for the final issue, as actually all of the departing characters will be. That's number 125. We also will see Cerise in the Maximum Security event, a couple issues here and there, and most recently in Mr. and Mrs. X, which is a whole lot of fun. What about Farron?
1: Farron is going to leave between this issue and next. He'll be back briefly in 124, getting revenge on the team, unfortunately, rather than its writers, for uh, forgetting about him. And he's going to come finally back in the last issue of the series, but... That's the last we'll see of him.
0: I actually really do like that bit in 124. The idea that a character that the writers forgot about comes back and is mad about being forgotten by the characters. That's that's fun. Valid. Micromax, despite having just finally officially joined the team, yeah, he's going to leave between this issue and the next also. He's going to go try to find a job somewhere.
1: And Kylan... Likewise, heads out between this and the next issue. He'll be back in the final issue and maybe a couple tiny Marvel appearances after that. But for the most part, he's been off the page.
0: So, yeah, we have Alan Davis off the book. And then we have Scott Lobdell and a couple other people, I'm going to assume, given Lobdell's prominence within the X office at this point. He was the one who made these decisions. Just taking out everything that made Excalibur the most recent incarnation of Excalibur that it was. We have all the new characters who are going to be gone by number 71. We have Captain Britain written out as well. So who is the book focusing on right now since Megan's in the waterfall? Not coincidentally, the mutants, Nightcrawler, Phoenix, and Shadowcat. And with that, you've got questions. Nurse Metal asks on Tumblr, Do you have a favorite example of the X-Men using strategy rather than brute force to take down an opponent? Personally, I never get tired of rereading the interrogation scene in Whedon's Unstoppable Arc.
1: First of all, yes, that is in fact one of my favorite examples of what you're talking about, as are the two versions of the conversation that preceded. I'm not going to spoil any of that uh, for the folks who haven't read it, but it's really delightful. I am also super fond of the the um, motif that comes up periodically it's 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 happened a few times in main continuity it's definitely happened um in first class as well of of cyclops using his surroundings basically to fight a an enemy who massively massively outnumbers or outguns him um most often it's the danger room in the mansion defense defenses but um he's he's used other places before and it's always really really cool
0: so, speaking of Cyclops, I think I mentioned an episode or two ago that I just read the entire Silver Age. And so, the scene is fresh in my mind where Cyclops defeats the Sentinels by convincing them to fly into the sun, because the sun is the source of all mutation. And what I also really love, and I hadn't realized until I reread the issue, is that when questioned about it later, Cyclops is like, yeah, I had no idea what they were going to do. I just figured if I said go fight the source of all mutation, something might happen. Well done, Scott. Yeah, I, I,
1: I mean— my my love for that story is well documented and And I'm definitely with you there.
0: I also really love a recent story we covered on the show where Havoc just whips out his checkbook and pays off random to stop the evil mission he's on rather than endangering all the innocent people around. But I think I have to go with Gene Grey channeling all of the willpower and love of an alien planet into Cyclops so that he could optic blast that love and willpower at the Celestials and convince them to spare the planet back in Judgment War. Or I guess Professor Xavier channeling all the willpower and love of a whole planet, that being Earth, into Cyclops so he could optic blast that willpower and love at the Xenox back in the Silver Age. You know, until I said it that way, I didn't realize that those resolutions are kind of the same thing, and I'm not sure if that makes me like Judgment War more or less. I'm gonna go with more.
1: There's also a specific pair of issues, I don't recall the numbers, but they're from very early in X-Men Legacy, when Emma Frost and Cyclops basically, in combination, pretty much out Professor X in some really amazing ways, um that work very, very, very well. And that's that's less a taking down an enemy than, than an opponent, but I, I think it probably fits the bill here. Tom asks via email, I'm looking for an updated appearance schedule for you both. Do you have any planned outings for 2019 where fans can meet you?
0: In fact, we do. We're going to be at Emerald City Comic Con in March. We're going to be tabling all long weekend. We'll have a live episode slash panel, and we'll have a podcast party that Saturday.
1: Yeah, both of those are on Saturday, by the way. Um, if you're planning on attending, and both of them are fairly late in the day, the party is basically right after the panel. So, and, and once again, at at our our favorite local comic shop, there, Phoenix Comics. We are hoping later in the year, and this is this is much later going to be, that late summer, early fall, to be at both FlameCon and Rose City Comic Con, although we don't have those locked in yet. We don't have those entirely confirmed, and we'll let you know as soon as we do. We get a lot of questions from folks about which conventions we're going to be at, and often whether we can come to a specific convention. And so I try to sort of address those periodically on our social media, and I kind of want to here as well. And the answer in general, if you want to see us do a show in your area, um, the best way to make that happen is to talk to the organizers about bringing us as guests because we're on opposite ends of the country. We generally don't make a lot of money at shows because we're not, you know, we're not artists. We're not selling original art. Um, our merch is hard to transport. And and that's that's for us kind of the main impediment to, to doing more shows.
0: So, yeah, if a show... Um... Can is in a position where they can have us as guests, we will definitely try to do that. Speaking just for myself, taking time off my day job can be hard, and the more conventions I do, the harder that is. But I love meeting listeners and reconnecting with listeners uh, that we've already met and just seeing all the awesome X-Men and comic book love out there. So um, I will always try my best. If uh, If it's feasible for us to do a convention, I will do my best to be there with Jay.
1: Now, speaking of listeners and love, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. You are the folks who keep us on the air and who keep us entirely ad-free. And some of those tiers of support on Patreon come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Today, the mic goes to the classic Magneto, the master of magnetism.
0: So that extraterrestrial fool, Cerise, was finally caught by her pursuers... I appreciated her color scheme, yet I must look upon her methods of concealment with pure disdain, for I, Magneto, the master of magnetism, know a thing or two about masking one's identity. Years ago, to my bitter shame, Scott Summers infiltrated my headquarters disguised as bondage Viking Eric the Red. And years from now, as I place mutants traitor Remy Lebeau on trial, I shall hide my own identity by disguising myself as... Bondage Viking, Eric the Red. Rick Heineken, I understand you prefer costuming gifted unto you by a space pony. But Denise Murray? Surely, were the Shi'ar Empire seeking to punish you for your space crimes you would know the only true option. Disguising yourself as bondage viking Eric the Red. And with that...
1: Jay and Miles, Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. Disguised as bondage viking Eric
0: the Red. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify and at explainthexmen.com.
1: Check out ExplainTheXMen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode.
0: Our show is 100% supported by listeners and bondage viking Eric the Red. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of ExplainTheXMen.com. Next week, it's two short stories for the price of one. As X-Men Unlimited joins the line.